In just a moment, we're going to uh, get into the book of 2 John. Let me just give you a little report uh, about yesterday. As you know, we, a group of us went down to the uh, old friend's uh, camp meeting, a Bible conference down in Joplin, Missouri, and I was preaching down there uh, throughout the day. And uh, kind of a sister church down there that uh, really loves God, really loves the Bible, really trying to do what's right. And uh, we just had a great time down there yesterday. I appreciate everybody that went down. And it's good for you to go down there and to see uh, people that are like-minded as you are. And, boy, they always treat us very graciously when we go down there. And food was great. And uh, uh, it was just a great time. Our cornerstone played, and they did a great job of ministering through music. And, you know, I think I wound up when I figured it all up. I, they had me slotted for uh, three two-hour sessions with 40 minutes in between. And I think I talked to answered 9,000 questions between sessions, so I think I wound up preaching about eight hours yesterday. Uh, I was beat last night, but you know what? I'm tired this morning, but I'll tell you what, it's a good tired. I was telling somebody this morning, you know what? There's been many times in my life when I was tired and wore out for something that I did or something I did for the world or the devil. It's a good feeling to know you're tired because you did something for God. And uh, so if I seem a little punchy this morning, uh, that's why, but uh, I'll, I'll snap out of it here when I get kicked into it here. But anyway, we're glad you're here this morning. And as I said, if you have your Bible, let's turn to the book of 2 John. Now, as you know, I told you uh, we were going to try, uh, I, I said initially when some of you asked me, and I really thought I would do 2 and 3 John together because they're such short books, you know. But I got to tell you, when I started laying first 2 John out, you know, and it had been a while since I really went through 2 John, and you know, I read it all the time or I take verses out of it and you know, somebody asks me a question in Bible study or whatever, but nobody really much asks questions about Second or Third John. But when I got into laying it out <coughs> and all the material I had there in my Bible, I thought to myself, it ain't ever going to happen. Uh, there are so much in Second John and, you know, you wouldn't think that there would be, but there certainly is. And as you know, we have been coming through the Bible. We... Uh, <coughs> Our church has been in existence for a little over two years, and we started basically laying out some key material in the first probably six or seven, eight months of our church, and then we moved to coming through the Bible book by book. And I wanted to lay a foundation in your life because of where we're going ministry-wise, and now that we're ready to start the athletic ministry, you know, and the outreach and how we're approaching that, you can better see how we have used our time wisely. And uh, God, in the process, has brought in a host of young couples and, and singles. And, uh, you know, we're in the process of bringing them along. You know, that's the really neat thing about the Bible. The principles of the Word of God always are the same. It, and because of that, it doesn't matter where you get in the Bible. It ain't like, well, you know, I didn't start when they started the church, so I really don't have, I, I'll never catch all that stuff. Or like... Somebody would say, well, you know what, I'm coming in here in Second John and he's been teaching all these books of the Bible, I'll never get caught up. You know, that's not the way it works. The Bible is such a book because it's not human and by design and God put it together supernaturally that the same principles that work in Second and Third John are the same principles that work anywhere in the Bible. So all you, wherever you jump in, you can learn the Bible and you can begin from there. And it's a great concept, and that's because uh, when God wrote this book, he, he wrote it for everybody. So today, as we've been coming through, uh, we're coming into the book of 2 John, and then next week we'll do 3 John. 
and then uh, we're going to do the book of Jude, and then we're going to do the book of Revelation. And somebody said, well, then what are you going to do? We're going to move right on into this thing. Because once we finish the books of the Bible, we have got a great platform for going back in and showing you how the individual books break down by going through God's systematic study. You've heard me say a thousand times that God has a systematic study by which He lays out the Bible. That is the study we're going to begin. Now that we've got the foundation laid, we've got the books defined, now we're going to go in when we finish these books, and this will take us probably two or three years, but when we're done, if you can stay in it and get as half of it, you know, you will be ready to do something for the Lord, and most of you are ready right now, and that's my goal. My goal is to train you for ministry, train you for what God wants to do in your life, to help you, uh, you know, get your marriages where they need to be, to help you get your families where they need to be, and all of those aspects, and then in the process, getting yourself where you need to be in your own relationship with God. So that's where we're at, and today we're going to, uh, we're going to look at the book of 2 John, and we're going to take it uh, uh, as we find it and kind of lay it out. You remember last week when we started 1 John, uh, I, I told you how that the books that the Apostle John writes are very key books. One last week, week before last. The Apostle John is a very unique character, and we talked about character studies. And uh, some of you on Thursday night really asked some good questions in the last couple of weeks about how to lay out character studies, and those are very important. And I told you, if you remember, that John is probably the most unique writer in all of the Bible. And there's a reason for that. John writes, when he writes his books, and we talked about it that week that he writes the Gospel of John, he writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then he also writes the book of the Revelation. When John writes those books, he writes from a very unique perspective. John is the only man in the Bible when he writes that he has everything else in front of him that has already been written in the Bible. He has the completed New Testament minus his books right before him. There's nothing that, <clears throat> that he lacks. He understands how it all begins to come together. And of course, God chose him to write the final books of the Bible because of his relationship with God, and we talked about that. We talked about how that John, the Apostle John, is one of the greatest character studies of really what your life and my life should be uh, in our relationship with God. We talked about how that of all the apostles that Jesus had, only John finished the course. John went all the way. I always thought it was unique. When Jesus Christ is hanging on the cross there and he's dying, John is standing at his feet. And uh, Jesus makes an interesting statement. He says to John, he, and he, lo he looks at Mary. Jesus looks at Mary, his mother. <clears throat> and then he looks to John. Then he says, <clears throat> he says, <clears throat> woman, behold thy son. And at that point on the cross, <clears throat> he gave his mother, Mary, to John for the custodianship. In other words, John is supposed to take care of Jesus' mother from this point on. Now, I always thought that was very instructive. And I know that from a historical aspect that that was the right thing to do because Mary, <coughs> you know, <coughs> she needed to, she's losing her son and <coughs> she gives, Jesus said to John, take care of my mother. Now, who of us <coughs> that wasn't going to die <coughs> and we had a wife or a mother or somebody, we would say, hey, look after them. Now, that's the practical historical thing. <coughs> but you know when you come to your Bible, Mary, the mother of Jesus, She's a type of the nation of Israel. She's a type of the nation of Israel. 
In fact, when you go over to Revelation chapter 12, you'll find about the woman who's in travail, who pains to be delivered, and she brings forth a man-child. And that man-child is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's caught up to God in glory on a throne, and of course that's a reference to Christ. Now, <clears throat> the reference to the woman there <clears throat> is Israel. But the story is about a woman having a child, and that makes Mary, the mother of Jesus, a type of the nation of Israel. And I find that it's very instructive because here's a man, John, who's a type of the church in every way, shape, or form. And yet we find that at this time, Jesus turns his mother, Israel, over to the custodianship of John, a type of the church. You know what that tells me? That tells me exactly what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 11, verse 25 and 26 and 27. The blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And then he goes down and he explains to the church that we are the custodians of the nation of Israel. He says that they are the enemies of the gospel to you, but you are to understand that they are the elect of the beloved. And it shows that the church's job is to look after the nation of Israel and to uh, take care of the nation of Israel, typified by Jesus giving his mother a type of the nation of Israel to John. All kinds of things like that. <clears throat> so when John writes, <clears throat> he writes with a very unique perspective. When John writes, he lays things out from an angle that <clears throat> fits right into your life and my life. And that's why when John writes, his books have dual applications. They fix, they, 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 there are practical things there that line up with what Paul says. We're going to see that today. And then there are things in this book that line up to the nation of Israel and what God is dealing with them. We'll see that today. And that's the way you and I ought to be. You and I ought to have two sides to us as a child of God. We ought to have one side that understands what God is doing with us, and then we have to have another side that we understand what God is doing with the nation of Israel. And you'll see that as we get through it today. Now, <clears throat> the book of 2 John is a very easy book. It's only got one chapter in it, and uh, it's only got, uh, <clears throat> it's only got uh, 13 verses in it. And it breaks down basically uh, right in the middle. And I'm going to give you the breakdown of the book so you can follow it through in your own personal study. In verses 1 through 6, you find a practical teaching of how that we are to walk in truth. Now, that has a practical side and it has a doctrinal side. What I'm going to show you today, for the most part, as we come through here, <clears throat> is I'm going to lay out the practical side of things, then I'm going to show you the doctrinal side. I'm going to show you how this book fits to you. I'm going to show you how it fits to the nation of Israel. So verses 1 through 6 have a practical side and a doctrinal side. But the theme of the first six verses is walking in truth. Then we have verses 7 through verse 13. <clears throat> we also have a practical side to this and a doctrinal side to this. <clears throat> the uh, doctrinal side and the practical side are under the theme of watching for error. Watching for error. And as always, <clears throat> we're going to follow the systematic study that we've laid out so far, and uh, we're going to just come through it, and we're going to look at it as the Bible lays itself out, and uh, we'll get some truth out of it for your own practical relationship with God and also to help you better understand the nation of Israel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for those that have come today. We pray for the many that are out with sick or traveling, and we pray that you'll uh, be with them as they uh, nurse their families back to health or they make their way back to Kansas City. Uh, we just pray, Father, that you'll watch over us, take care of us, 
Lord, give us a, a good time in your word today. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' sake. For his name we ask it. Amen. Two plans in your Bible. If you want to keep the Bible very simple and you want to remember the Bible in a very simple form, just remember these two plans. God has two plans that are unfolded in the Bible. The first plan is the plan that He has for His people, the nation of Israel. It's a very entailed plan, and it covers the whole space of the Bible, the Old Testament, including the New Testament. I don't care the fact that we're in the church age right now. God is still working with His people, the nation of Israel, because God's got something that He's going to give them that's got something to do with the future. God has two plans in the Bible. And if you want to just remember those two simple concepts, you're already ahead of 98% of God's people in the world who don't know that. God has two plans that the Bible is written around. Every verse in the Bible, every book in the Bible, every chapter in the Bible, every man and woman in the Bible, everything in the Bible will weave itself in and out of those two plans. Your job and my job is simply to learn those two plans learn to identify those two plans, learn to define those two plans, and then learn to take the Scriptures and rightly divide them, where go, which ones go to one plan and which one goes to the other. That's all the Bible is. And that's what I do. That's what I try to help you to do. Everything we've done in these lessons have been to help you understand those two plans. I don't see any value in making the Bible more complicated than it already appears to be, and I told you. God wrote a book that anybody could understand. The Bible is written in fifth grade English. The Bible is a book that anybody that understands it, basic English can read. God didn't write it in a way that only an elite group could understand it. God didn't write it in a way that only educated people can get it. God wrote it that people like me could get it. And uh, I'm not an educated man. I've never been to Bible college. Don't want to go to Bible college. I, don't, I, I had a hard time getting out of high school. I was in the seventh grade so long, the kids brought me the apple. They thought I was the teacher. I, I, nothing, nothing great about me in the sense that, you know, I just believe what God gave me. He wrote me a book. He wrote it in a simple form because I'm a very simple individual. He wrote it so any idiot could get it because I am definitely an idiot. And he wrote the thing out that if I just wanted truth and wanted to find the truth of God, he gave me a book that was simple. Now, I spent 35-some years of my life coming through that book. I understand it a lot better now than I did. Don't understand it all, but I believe what I understand. And so now I have the ability to show you how simple it is, to help you in your personal life, to help you in your family, to help you in your marriage, to help you raise your kids, to help you in your individual walk with God to be the man or the woman God wants you to be. <clears throat> That's the way it works. And uh, so when we come to chapter 1, <coughs> here, here's how it works. And look at chapter 1. I'm going to begin to read uh, the first six verses because that's what we're going to talk about here and we'll see how this thing works. Some great things here. <coughs> the elder, under the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all they that have known the truth. For the truth's sake, which dwelleth in us, and shall be with us forever. Grace be unto you, mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly that I found of thy children walking in the truth as we have received a commandment from the Father. And now I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning that we love one another. And this is the love 
that we walk after His commandments. This is the commandment, that as ye have heard from the beginning, ye should walk in it. Wow, what a great passage of Scripture. Let's take this thing and break it down. You know, the first part of this first six verses, and I told you this, has to do with our walk. Told you there's two plans in the Bible. And these two plans really lay out around the nation of Israel and the body of Christ. Let me show you how it works. Come back to Psalms chapter 1. Psalms chapter 1 is a great passage in the Word of God. I want to show you how this thing works. And uh, I'm going to show you the practical side of it, and I'm going to show you the doctrinal side of it. I'm going to show you how the practical side lays out to your life and my life. I'm going to show you how the doctrinal side lays out to the nation of Israel. Remember John now. John is what you and I should be. John has the ability to understand both plans. He has the ability to understand God's plan for the nation of Israel. And he has the ability to understand God's plan for the church, you and for me. Psalms chapter 1. Now it says this, and I'm going to read the first three verses here. And then we're going to look at it. It says this, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in this law doth he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the river of waters that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. And then a simple verse in verse 4, the ungodly are not so. What a great concept. Now let's talk about this for a moment because uh, we want to talk at it from both aspects. We want to see it, first of all, from the personal aspect. It says here that blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. I don't know if you know this or not, but the whole book of Psalms is a book that God wrote so you could be blessed. Sixty-seven times in the book of Psalms you find the word Blessed, to be blessed, or blessed. You can't start reading the book of Psalms without beginning to understand the great concept that God wants to bless you and me. We're going to look at this from the practical side first. Then we're going to look at it from Israel's side. God wants to bless you. I looked at this. It says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. You know what I see in that verse? I see the progression that gets you and me into trouble. I see the progression here that gets you and me in trouble. Because God wants to walk with us. God wants you and I to walk together. In fact, the Bible says in the book of Amos, how can two walk together except they be agreed? God wants to walk through life. Let me clarify that. God wants to walk through life's issues and life's problems with you. That Bible says during that walk, He's given you a light because He doesn't want you to walk in darkness. And the Bible says, what? If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. That's your walk. Now, I want you to notice what gets you and me into trouble. It says, blessed is the man that walketh not. See, the moment you stop walking with God, now I'm talking to Christians. The moment you stop walking with God and you start walking with the counsel of the ungodly. Now that's a great phrase because the counsel of the ungodly are people who are against God who are going to counsel you differently than your pastor would or the Word of God does. 
When you come to me, I tell you what the Bible says. When you run out with your friends that are part of the council of the ungodly, they're going to tell you what the world status is. That's what they're going to do. And when you stop walking with God and you start walking with them, it's only a matter of time that once you start walking in the council of the ungodly. I mean, just follow the progression. He says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners. Once you cease walking with God and you start walking the way of the ungodly, it's pretty soon that you're standing in the midst of them. And the longer you stand with them, pretty soon you're sitting in the midst of them and you become one of them. That's the progression. In other words, every young man, every young lady, every mom, every dad that suddenly quit coming to church and quit going to what, doing what they needed to do in their life, when you look at their life and the mess that they're in, when you look at all the screwed up ideas that they've got now, when you look at failed marriages and all the things that go along, it's not complicated. I don't have to have a degree in psychology or have a Ph.D. to figure it out. I'll tell you what it is. If you're a child of God, someplace in your life you quit walking with God and you started walking in the counsel of the ungodly and you wasn't just walking, you were taking their counsel. And pretty soon you were standing with them and pretty soon you're seated, you're seated in the scene of the scornful. You know what that means? That means that some of God's people right now will make fun of you coming to church and used to come church and you sit there and scratch your head and say, why is so-and-so doesn't he want to come to church? Why is, why is so-and-so, why does she want to come to church? And why do they make fun of me when I come to church? Because they began that downward spiral progression of life that when you quit walking with God and you start listening to the counsel of the ungodly, pretty soon you're standing with the sinners and pretty soon you're sitting in the seat of the scornful and you're making fun of God and the things of God just like the unsaved world does. See how easy it is? You can all pick up your degree on the way out. You're now licensed counselors. It's just that simple. It's just that easy. It's just that basic in everything that you do. And he says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Now here's the alternative. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in this law doth he meditate day and night. All right? Your delight is the Word of God. I don't, know what, <clears throat> I don't know what you delight yourself with. Now, I'm not one of these kind of preachers that says you can't have fun in life. I'm really not. You like to, a lot of you guys like to hunt. I like to hunt. A lot of you guys like to fish. I like to fish. I never shoot anything or I never catch anything, but I like to go. There's a lot of things I like to do. And uh, I'm not one of these guys that, <clears throat> that thinks that, uh, that you can't do those things. Hey, you know what? I'm going to be honest with you. You guys, uh, you guys work hard every week. You work, you work hard, and uh, you do things that uh, you, uh, you know, you have to have some time off, and you have to be able to enjoy the things that you want to enjoy. Hey, I'm the first one. I have things that I like to enjoy. I have things that I like to do. But you know what? I'm going to be very honest with you. I don't know of anything I delight myself with more than being in the Word of God. And I'm not some stick in the mud that thinks that you can't have fun. I mean, I like watching football games. I like skeet shooting. I like fishing. I like hunting. I like when that little rabbit bumps out of that thing and starts zigzagging all over the place and you miss him and kill your dog instead. I enjoy those things. 
I, I, I like all kinds of things. I, I, I can't think of any. I mean, there's lots of things I don't like to do. I don't like golf. <laughs> what are you laughing at? You can't play it either. <laughs> you break. I tried playing golf one time, and I went out, and I'll tell you what, I had to scare my life. I, could hit the, I can hit the ball harder and farther than anybody ever, they told me, but I just can't get it to go straight. And I never forget, we were playing one time, and I, I, and I hit that thing, and there was a golf cart coming down the thing. I mean, I'm, I'm shooting this way. The golf cart is over here. Man, I whacked that thing, and that ball went outside. And it was almost, it was like in slow motion. You know how you know you have those dreams when you, you're somebody, big monsters chasing you, and you're trying to run, and you can't run fast, and you like your feet are stuck in something, and everything stops time? Well, that's what it was, and it's, it, only it was real. It wasn't a dream. I can see that golf ball leaving that tee and just going in slow motion, and these guys are driving down, you know, and there's four guys in it. And that golf ball is getting closer, and suddenly I see the stark tear on their face when they realize that there's a golf ball coming right for this golf cart. That golf ball hit inside that thing and rattled. I could see it rattling around. Those guys, you know, beer was going everywhere, you know, and, and every cart was going crazy, you know, and, and I'm seeing it right now. I'm seeing my name in, in headlines, you know, Bob Alexander up for four counts of first-degree murder, you know. I mean, <laughs> that thing went around there, man, and shot out the other side, and, and I thought to myself, whoo, that was it. That was it. That was it. That was my last game of golf for which I got four thank you cards from the guys that was in that cart. But anyway, that was it. That's not my game. But I like it. I watch it on television. I just to see, I just watch it because I want to see if they can hit somebody in a cart. None of them can. That Tiger Woods guy, he can put it in a hole out there, but he can't aim this way, go that way, and hit four guys in a cart. I can't. <laughs> Nike ought to give me $4 million. I can do what none of these guys can do. I got an angle on my golf ball that just won't quit. Anyway, but you know what? <clears throat> I can't think of anything I do in my life, and I like to do a lot. I like the outdoors, man. I grew up trapping coyotes, trapping red fox, gray fox. I, I grew up trapping all that kind of stuff. I paid for my whole first Kelly being born by catching, trapping, snapping turtles that big. We didn't have any insurance back then, and, and I was... Grew up in a trapping family, and boy, I'll tell you what, I had a restaurant that paid me uh, $8 a pound for turtle meat and frog legs. I paid for my first baby being born when we didn't have any money. I went out and trapped turtles and frog legs. We went out one night, and I'll tell you what, we're on this big old 25-acre backwater dam uh, with a backwater come up, and it was dark out that night, and the bullfrogs were so, I, if you were standing next to me, I couldn't talk to you in a normal voice. They were I mean, everywhere. You take a flashlight, shine over that bank line, all you'd see would be look like little headlights coming to you, frog's eyes. We gig frogs all night long. Brought back 600 frogs that night. And then we stayed up all night cleaning them out, cutting them up. We went down there one night, man, and I'll tell you what, one day down there in Turtles, man, I'll tell you what, I, I, I love to do that stuff. I still got turtle nets in my garage, just in case I had medical insurance runs out, I'll go back to trapping turtles. I don't know. But I get them, you, you want a challenge in life? Get a 65-pound snapping turtle out of something about that big. He's got a neck like that and a head like that. I mean, this movie Jaws 1, 2, and 3, hey, I make my own movie called Snapper. I'll tell you what, them suckers bite a hold of you. They don't let go. 
And I tell you what, but I like that stuff. I mean, I get into it. I get out there, you know, and get out in the morning, take the dogs out, and that old air is crisp out there, boy. And I can just, you know, doves are flying back and forth, man. I mean, I'm in the south end of Raytown, and people wonder why shotgun blasts are going off. Man, I tell you, you know, I enjoy it. I enjoy watching the Chiefs play. I enjoy watching the Royals play. I, don't, I hate baseball, but then them big old hot dogs with chocolate on it are great. There's something about getting a hot dog at a ball game and nachos that's better than any other place in the world. And I'll just tell you what. And the beer's good, too. No, I'm just kidding. No, I'm just kidding. And I'm down there, you know, and I'll tell you what. And I love that kind of stuff. But I'm going to tell you something. I don't know of anything that delights me more than getting into that book. That's my delight. And that's the way it should be. God doesn't want you to quit enjoying life. He just wants, once you get saved, He just wants you to enjoy it with Him. That's all. And then it says in verse 3, And he shall be like a tree planted by the river of waters that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. Now that's a great thing. You're going to find that uh, there's four seasons to your life and my life. There's four things that we have in our life that are seasonal. And when the Bible says, Bring forth his fruit in his season, these four aspects in your life have to do with fruit. The first aspect in your life is your life itself. There's a season to your life. You're young, springtime. You grow up, summertime. You go into the senior years of your life, fall, and then you hit the wintertime in your life, and it's over. Everything dies in the winter. And uh, that's the way it works. I'll tell you something else. The other thing that's seasonal is your family. You have kids. That's the springtime. And uh, you grow them up. They come to the place where the summertime in their life. They go through the fall time of their life. And they'll go through the wintertime in their life too. I'll tell you something else that's seasonal in your life. It's the Word of God. You start out not knowing at all. Know a little bit about it in the springtime. You come into the summertime of your life when you really get a handle on it. That's why there's seven stages of spiritual growth, folks. You start out as a baby Christian in the springtime of your life and you wind up as an elder or the aged in the wintertime of your life. In other words, the older you get physically, the more you ought to know about God because you've been walking with Him longer. You don't learn about God by just going to seminary someplace. You don't learn about God by just going through the... You learn about God by walking with Him every day of your life. And then the last part of the season is your ministry. My ministry has a season to it. I started out young. I came through the springtime, the summertime years of my life, and now I'm coming out of summer and moving into fall. There'll be a time in my life if Jesus doesn't come that I'll enter into the winter time. And every one of these four things have to bear fruit together. Your life is nothing more about than bearing fruit for God by giving your life to God. Your family is raising them up that they help you bear the fruit that God wants you to bear. Your Bible 
is the process of the seasons of learning more about it so that when you get to the older part, that's why in the Bible no man in the Old Testament could ever do anything till he was 30 years old. They understood the concept of seasons. And we might probably say from that that you really don't enter into the summertime of your life till you're 30 from the Bible standpoint. In fact, I'm sure you could probably go through the Bible and put this whole thing together and you could probably get the breakdown of these four seasons uh, in the years by the examples in the Bible. I'm sure you could. But the Bible says that you and I are to be like a tree planted by the river of waters, the river of waters, the Holy Spirit of God. And you and I as a tree get our roots down and get the water and the deeper the roots, the better the water and you get that water and it makes the tree grow. That's a picture of your life and my life when it walks with God. And then it says this. Bringeth forth his leaf in his uh, bringeth forth his fruit in his season. There is a season to your fruit bearing. There is a season to my fruit bearing. You got to see it. This is why the devil are after young people. We were driving back from Joplin last night and I was thinking of what I was going to say today and we came by John Knox village. And I got thinking about this, and I mentioned this to you before. I don't know where I did. I remember saying something somewhere about it or someplace. But I, I thought to myself, drive, I always think about John Knox Village every time I drive by. You know what? You know that Independence and Lee Summit and Raytown and Kansas City are the drug meth capitals of the world. You know that? And yet, in the middle of all that, there's never been one meth bust in John Knox Village. You ever notice how older people like that, senior citizens type, don't ever get hung up on drugs? You ever notice, have you ever walked through John Knox Village? Have you ever walked, out, walked through down the hallways, down those rooms down there and see those old dear people, you know, or any, any, any old folks home? You go down there on a Saturday night, man, that thing is just as quiet as can be. You walk out of my neighborhood on Saturday night while the cops were down the street the other night, a big old fight going on down there. I mean, four or five cop cars, I mean, guys out in the street knocking each other down. It's a great place. I had to laugh this week. I don't know if you saw us in the star or not. Kansas City Star, I always read the Kansas City Star. I do two things. And this is another sign you get in order. You start looking at the obituary to see who died. <laughs> I want to see if my name's in there. <laughs> if I die, I don't want to miss it. But anyway, you know, and I thought to myself, here was this article in here. Kansas City, one of the warmest places of, with people and friends in all of the United States. Big article, right above it. Man shoots his friend <laughs> as he's talked to him on the street corner. <laughs> I thought to myself, man, if that isn't an oxymoron, I don't know what is, man. I don't know what an oxymoron is. But anyway, if that isn't a contradiction to turn, that is, there it is. Kansas City, the warmest, friendliest town in America, right above it. Man shoots his friend on street corner in the middle of the city over argument. Oh, man, that's us. That's us. But there's a time to your fruit bearing. Apple trees don't bear apples in February. Pears don't grow on trees in January. And you see, the reason why you don't have a, the old folks aren't tempted with the sins that young folks are, and they don't get the, into the music, they don't get into the drugs, they don't get into all of that stuff that goes on, even though they're lost and on their way to hell in many cases. You know why that is? Because they, they offer no value to the devil now. The devil knows something that most of us don't understand today, that there's a twilight, a wintertime of your life, 
And when you hit that point, you're not going to do anything for God or the devil. So the devil doesn't care about you anymore. He's going to focus on where the youth is, where the young men and the young ladies are, because that's where the potential is, and he is going to work doubly hard at canceling out your fruit-bearing season. And let's go back to the beginning. You know how that happens? You quit walking with God, you start walking with the world. You start taking their counsel, you start hanging out with them, and pretty soon you're just scornful like they are. It's, it's infallible. It's infallible. And, of course, it goes on there, and it says, His leaf also shall not wither, and whatever, what would what he do? It shall prosper. We call that the Midas touch. King Midas was a man that everything he touched turned to gold. A child of God that does what God wants him to do, that walks with God, that understands the things I'm talking about this morning, there'll be nothing in his life that he doesn't touch that God won't get the honor and glory for, and that gold translates into the gold of the judgment seat of Christ. You see, that's the practical relationship of a walk with God out of the, gospel, out of the book of 2 John, chapter 1. Now, let's look at it from the doctrinal side for Israel. Blessed is the man, the man here is Israel. The man here from a practical experience is, is you and me. But the man here is Israel, verse 1, doctrinally. Blessed is the man, Israel, that walketh not on the counsel of the ungodly. Israel had a problem with that all down through the Old Testament. They always took somebody else's counsel. They always forsook what God told them. And they always did their own thing. That's why they got messed up with Baal worship and everything else and wound up putting their kid through the fire of Molech and doing all those stupid things back there. And that's really why God got them because look what happened. When they quit walking with God as a nation and they began to get the counsel of the ungodly, you know what they wound up being? They wound up putting my Savior on the cross and making fun of Him, laughing at Him, and now they are sitting right in the seat of the scornful. The very people that God called out to be His people because they ceased to walk with God and began to walk with the counseling and godly and hang out with the sinners wind up putting their Savior, their Messiah, my Savior, on the cross of Calvary and then making fun of Him while He's on there. And somebody said, that's a terrible thing. What are you talking about? God's people do that all the time today. In the practical side, see? Two applications to this. John sees both. Well, let's go on here. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. Self-explanatory, if you're looking at it from the nation of Israel, that'd be the Old Testament law that God gave them, and they were to meditate it day and night. In fact, over to, if you would go over to Jerusalem today and go down to the Wailing Wall, you know what you'd see? You'd see a bunch of old guys with little funny hats with beards, with black suits, they'd be up there doing this. Now you may look like at first glance they're banging their, banging their head against the Wailing Wall. But that's not what they're doing. They're doing what they're supposed to do. They're meditating in that book day and night. That's why when, when you, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when Christ shows up, a commercial fisherman, Peter, knew more about the Old Testament than any Bible scholar in the world today. You know why? Because as an Old Testament pork-abstaining Jew, he was taught and trained to meditate in the Scripture day and night. Day and night. You say, well, how do they miss Christ? Because even in that, you can get the wrong attitude of heart. Just knowing the Bible doesn't solve your problem. It's doing what the Bible says that solves your problem. You can have the academics of knowing the Bible. That's what Israel's got today. They got all the head knowledge. They missed it in here. And then it goes on, and it says this. And he should be like a tree planted by the river of waters. Hey, when it comes to the nation of Israel... There's only one tree that is planted by the river of waters anywhere in your Bible, and it is the tree of life in Ezekiel chapter 40 through chapter 48, 
and the water comes out of the millennial temple and comes down through the king's highway and go down into the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea comes alive. The Deverett blooms of the rose, as the Bible says, and out it goes. And Israel is that tree that is planted at that time, and that time is the millennial reign of Christ. You see how it works both ways? It's exactly how it works. So when you look at 2 John and you see that the first six verses have to do with our walk with God, I want you to see this thing. I want you to see how it fits from a practical application, you and me, and I want you to see it, how it applies to a doctrinal application to the nation of Israel. Because John is the most unique writer in all the Bible. And when he writes, he writes from both perspectives. Because there's two plans in the Bible. One is the nation of Israel and the other one is the body of Christ. And I just gave you a place in the Old Testament that shows you how both plans work out. That's all the Bible is. Alright, he says in verse 1, the elder, the elder under the elect lady, the elder. <clears throat> All right, the elder is John. And I think that's very instructive because John was not a pastor. John was an elder. And that's a great thought because uh, we already looked at the intimate relationship that John had with Jesus. We already saw how that he laid his head on the very breast of the Lord Jesus Christ and heard the very heartbeat of God. We have already accounted for the fact that he is probably the greatest man in the Bible that foreshadows what you and I should be. And he's a man who figures out the Bible the way that you and I should figure it out in both concepts, Israel and the church. But yet he's not a pastor. He's an elder. And I think that's very instructive because through my years in the ministry, I've met lots of people, talked to lots of people, bumped into lots of people that thought the ministry was just the pastor's job. The winning people to Christ was my job. The really knowing the Bible was the pastor's job. And see, that mindset comes because you don't understand that uh, maybe not all of you are called the pastor, but if you're saved, you've been called the minister. And there's four seasons to your life. And one of these days, when you get home to the judgment seat of Christ, God's going to check the fruit if you're saved. He's going to check the fruit. He's going to check that thing out, and he's going to see what kind of fruit you bore. And I think it's very instructive here that this aspect of walking with God, the man that God chose to do it was not even a pastor. He's just a common, ordinary person like you who, through the process of spiritual growth, started out with a season in his life when he knew nothing about the Bible and wound up in his life where he's an elder. And we know that the Bible says as an elder is a man or a woman who is an overseer in the church. Women are elders too. And they help oversee the congregation and the flock with the pastor. They're not ordained as a pastor, but their responsibility is the same as the pastor. Ministry. Helping oversee the ministry taking the weight off the pastor's shoulders in different areas of ministries and working together as a team. Last Thursday night, maybe now you boys understand why I said to you the things that I said in our little meeting. And I'm sure you did. That's my point, guys. That's my point. You see, the plan for you is to come through that process. But i got to start with you somewhere. Well, whenever you start, you now know what I expect. For the rest of you, don't worry about that. I just gave him a little pep talk. We walked around the room, held hands, saying, Bowies and girls for Jesus, soldiers, everyone. 
Then it says in verse 1, The elder unto the elect lady. Now, this is where we, we, we have some fun here. This is where the fun starts. All scholarship. All scholarship says that this lady here is the church. Of course, they don't know what to do with the book of Second John. The NIV is even funnier. The NIV says this elect lady is a particular lady who John really liked who he was writing to. I like that. Anything but what you got, you see. Now, I hate to break all the bubbles here, but uh, the church is called a dove in the Bible. The church is called my undefiled one. The church is called a bride. The church is called a virgin. The church is called a chaste virgin. But the church is never called uh, a lady. I just never called. When, uh, never called elect. Never. And she's never called a lady. The definitive passage for the elect lady here would be Matthew chapter 24, verses 21 through 22. You'll find the word elect 13 times in your Bible. And every time you find it, it'll be always the nation of Israel. But the definitive verse is Matthew chapter uh, 24, verse 21, 22. And it says there, uh, talking about the tribulation period and the nation of Israel, nothing about the church. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world, to this time, uh, nor, uh, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days, days of the tribulation, should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. The elect is Israel. So this elect lady here has nothing to do with the church. It certainly isn't some lady that John met along the way someplace. That's ridiculous. Uh, along with this, you want to look at Isaiah chapter 27, verse 13, Isaiah chapter 65, verse 9, Isaiah 45, 4, and I already gave you Matthew chapter 24, uh, 21 and 22, and then also look at Matthew chapter 24, verse 31, I believe is something you'd want to look at too. And I said, the word elect never used for the church anywhere in the Bible. And of course, the elect here is the nation of Israel, and her children down here are the same children that Paul, Peter was talking to in Acts chapter 38 and 39 when he talked about the promise to the second coming of Christ was to Israel and her children. Same people, same crowd. In fact, here's where here, now, this is a good thing to learn too. This is why I couldn't do both books together. Now, let's take the position that the NIV and all scholarship is right. Let's say that this elect lady is the church. Let's just take that position. Let me show you how subtle the devil is. Let's take the position that this elect lady is the church. Now, once you make the elect lady the church, and then she's elect lady has got children, those children now have to be you and I. And then you have the great doctrine that <coughs> you and I are sons of the church. See how subtle that thing is? That heresy was first taught by a guy by the name of Polycarp all the way back in 165 A.D. where the Bible says in the book of Revelation chapter 2 that the church at Ephesus left their first love, the Word of God, and it's where good godly men began to deviate from the Word of God and come up with all these cockeyed things that had nothing to do with the Bible, but down the line when the Roman Catholic Church wanted to establish their doctrine for you being a son of the church, that's where they went. So here we find it. Here we find it in 2005. In your new NIV, which is the Roman Catholic Bible anyhow, that you and I, and all of the teaching of scholarship, that you and I, the elect lady is the church, and we are her children, so you and I are sons of the church. See how subtle it is? Now that's the difference between knowing your Bible and not knowing your Bible. That's the difference between understanding Bible doctrine. 
So we see this thing and how it lays out, and it, it, it becomes a very interesting thing. Look at verse 6, and here's another great concept. And this is the love that we walk after His commandment, that as ye have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. Now, from a doctrinal standpoint here with the nation of Israel, it shows a great truth. It shows the great truth that the nation of Israel starts in Genesis, in God's mind, and then begin to develop down through its four seasons right there. Because in Genesis chapter 1 to verse 10, you have, or Genesis chapter 1 to chapter 10, you have the formulation of the nation of Israel. In chapter 11 through chapter 15, you have the birth of the nation of Israel with Abraham. You'll find that in Genesis chapter 14, verse 13, a name shows up the first time in your Bible. It's the word Hebrew. That's Abraham. That's where Israel gets its birth nationally. Genesis chapter 16 and 17, the calling out of Israel. They go to a land that uh, God promised them. And in Genesis chapter 18 through 50, you find the structuring of the nation of Israel through the 12 sons of Jacob to become the 12 tribes. So it shows you from that verse right there that uh, the nation of Israel, God's plan, or one of God's plans, was in God's mind all the way from the beginning. Now that's a great thought if you're a Bible student because that shows you that there is a process to what God does. And you're going to find out that God, if you, when you learn your Bible to the place that you need to, you're going to find out that God has a very definite two plans in His Bible, the nation of Israel and the body of Christ, each for different reasons. And you're going to find that uh, they're both in God's mind and in the Old Testament long before they were ever called Jews, long before they ever became an established nation, long before they ever got Jerusalem. In God's mind, He was formulating, giving birth, calling out, and structuring the nation of Israel and the commandments that go with it, as First John chapter 1, verse 6 says, from the beginning, from the beginning, all the way back to Genesis. Well, then we come into the next section. Let's look at that for a few moments here, and we'll be done. Let's look at the next section. Let's read this section. This will be section 7 through 13. This is the one I told you that, how the thing was uh, broken down here. Now watch this one. This is good. For many, dis I told you now the theme of this one, the first one, the theme of the first six verses was to walk. Now we got a good definition of that. The theme of the second half is to watch. Let's go on. Verse 7. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that ye lose not those things which ye have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you, and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him God's speed. For he that biddeth him God's speed is partakers of his evil deeds. Having many things to write unto you, I would not write with paper and ink, but I trust to come unto you and speak face to face, that our joy may be full. Uh, greet the children, of, uh, the children of the elect sister. Greet thee. Amen. All right, I'll look at some things in here. First thing I want you to notice is up there in verse 7. The Bible says, For many deceivers are in and into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is coming to the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. 
I told you last time we studied this, back there in the gospel, or the uh, uh, first John, he told you and I to try the spirits. To try the spirits to find out if they're of God or not. We talked about that. Here's a great example of how you try the spirits. If a man or a woman, a church, church teachings, deny that Jesus Christ is coming to the flesh, the Bible says they're the spirit of Antichrist. What does that mean? That means denying the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. I can take nine religions right now as we speak here that deny that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. You don't even have to think twice about them. To try the spirits is simply this, and I told you this last week. When you try the spirits, you simply see what somebody says they believe. Then you go to the Scriptures and find what the Bible says about what they... And when it doesn't line up, you drop kick them through the goalposts of life. You will just try the spirits. The Spirit of God is living inside you. The Spirit of God wrote that book in front of you. And when you take the Holy Spirit of God that's in you and look at the Word of God and put it together, you always get the answer that God wants you to have. I don't have to think twice about a man that says... Well, I don't think Jesus Christ was really God. I think that he was just a good teacher and a good man. See you later. See you later. Don't even have to think about it twice. You can't miss the doctrinal application here in verse 7 to the nation of Israel because their right in them deal is a, is a reference to the Antichrist. Now, there's two types of Antichrist. There's a practical Antichrist that you meet every day of your life and there's a doctrinal antichrist who we hope you never meet. The practical antichrist are people that you bump up against all day at work who are against everything that God does. They are antichrist. They are against anti. They are against Christ. But then there is the antichrist doctrinally that's going to show up and he is specifically against Christ and he is going to mislead and misguide the nation of Israel and the whole world as you know from our past studies. So you see it all right in place here. Now before we jump into this verse, let me deal with another issue here. And this is a practical thing. Let me look at, let's look at verse 10 and 11, because this is something I get asked about all the time. So let me just set the record straight for you. Verse 10, if there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, the doctrine of Christ, Receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed, for he that biddeth him Godspeed is a partaker of his evil deed. Now, from that, I've been asked, if we've been asked once in my lifetime, I've been asked a hundred times. From that comes the teaching that people are afraid that when a Jehovah Witness comes to your house, that uh, you don't want to let him into your house because if you let him into your house, you're violating some principle. Now, I don't really care whether you let him into your house or you don't. Now, Jehovah Witnesses, as Mormons, are famous for going around and knocking on people's doors, and they want to come in and talk to you. And there's Christians who believe that if you allow them into your house, you've violated some principle here. And that's not true. There's a difference here, and the difference is where it says, receive them into your house. Now, there's a difference between letting them come into your house because you're going to wax their tail with the Bible than allowing them to come in and you receive them into your house. When you come to my house, and all of you will get there at some point or the other. You can come over any time you want. I don't care. But when you get to my house, you will find the thing that I love about uh, us and our ministry, and that is that we're just one big family. When Woody comes over, he heads for two things, the Twinkies and the Black Cherry Pop. He knows where they're at. He doesn't even have the courtesy to ask me anymore where they're at. <laughs> when he first started coming over, he said, hey, where's the Twinkies? 
Now it's, get out of my way. I'm getting to the Twinkies. Okay? I like that. I've had somebody come to my house before and open the refrigerator and see what's in there to eat. I like that. Marion comes over and my kids were there and down through there and they're eating supper. Marion just sits down and eats supper. <laughs> it's just the way that it is. In other words, my house is your house. When you come to my house, whatever you need, whatever you want, spiritually and physically, if it's possible, you can have it. I mean, uh, that's the way it is. You see, that's what I call, that's what the Bible calls receiving you into my house. Mine is yours. If you're Jehovah Witness and you come to my house and it's a hot July day and you want a drink of water, you ain't getting one. <laughs> Why? You say, that doesn't sound very, very Christian. He ain't a Christian. And if he says, why can't I have a drink of water? I'm going to say, because if you don't trust Jesus Christ, Jehovah God, as your own personal Savior, you're going to go to a burning hell and you ain't going to get any water there anyhow. So if you're not going to trust him, start practicing. <laughs> See? Now, some of you have a problem with that, but that's because you're not as biblical as I am, you see? I remember one time, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of ways to deal with it. I remember one time I was, I was out there on a, back in Ohio. I was out there doing something, and I saw two guys coming down the thing there, and I knew in a the moment they were Jehovah Witnesses. You know, you can tell them. A Mormons always ride bikes, and they have little name tags. Jehovah Witnesses just look buzz haircuts, and they're all dressed very nice, very clean. Hey, you know what? I wish I could get God's kids to dress like that. But you can't. Anyway, devil's kids will dress nice, but God's kids won't. But that's okay. That's another message. And I may preach that before the end of the day is over. But anyway, so I watch them coming down the thing there, and uh, they come up to my door, and I walked out, and I said, hi. And he says, well, how are you? And he says, uh, we were just in your neighborhood. I said, I know. I said, you're Jehovah's Witnesses. And there's a big guy and there's a little guy. They always send them out in two, because Matthew chapter 10, they send them out in two. And he says, how do you know we're Jehovah's Witnesses? And I said, well, I'm a Jehovah's Witness. The little guy looked at the big guy, and he said, uh, well, we... You know, we know all the Jehovah Witnesses around here. Uh, we, we don't know you. I, I, says, I said, when did you become a Jehovah Witness? And I said, oh, about six years ago when I asked Jesus Christ, Jehovah God, to come into my heart and save me. And I asked Jehovah God, Jesus Christ, to save me from a literal burning hell. And I said, so Jesus Christ, Jehovah God, come into my heart and save me from that literal burning hell. Acts chapter 1 says you are to be my witnesses, so I'm a Jehovah Witness. The little guy looked at the big guy and he says, well, that's not the kind we are. I said, that's the only kind there is. You guys must be phonies. See? Then let them have it. Let them have it. And I'll bring them in the house. You want water? Sorry. You want to use the bathroom? Go learn to tap dance. I'm not going to help you. In fact, we had, we had our discipleship meeting. Remember that, that guy's that Saturday morning and Jehovah's Witnesses came to the door? And they said, hi, what are you doing? I said, oh, we're having a Bible study. And he said, oh, we like to study the Bible. He said, got any Bible study material? He says, he says yeah, we got these things. I said, I, need, I, got, I got 20 some people in here. And I said, and they got family members. I said, I need, can you get me 30? Oh, his eyes lit up. Ran down to his head mentor down there and said, oh, boy, we got a real fool up here. There's a guy who's got 15, 20 people up here. He wants to study our material. He needs to some. Give me some. They want it for their families. They want it there. We're going to win this whole thing. We're going to pick up 60 Jehovah Witnesses out of this thing. Give them to me. Ran back up to the house, gave them down there to me, and I said, thanks a lot, brother. I appreciate that. Walked in there. You were there. I said, hey, any of you that want these to learn some stuff, take them. Rest of them went right in the trash. That's 60 somebody else won't get. See how that works? Thank you very much. 
That's how it works. So when it talks about not receiving him into your house, it doesn't mean you can't let him come in. It just means that you don't bid him Godspeed. You don't help them in their ministry of damnation, of destroying people, no matter who they are. And I know I've been picking on Jehovah Witnesses here, but you know what? I'm sorry. I'm, I, I, it just came to my mind. I have more stories about Jehovah Witnesses. I have a dog named Rutherford. That's why. It's, you know, he started Jehovah Witnesses. But anyway. All right, let's go on down. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 is the key. Now, here's the key. Verse 8 is the key. It says, look, look to yourselves that you lose not those things which we have wrought, but you receive a full reward. Well, that's a great verse. You know, in the Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 33, down around verse 7, he says something like this. So thou, O son of man, I have set thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore thou shalt hear the word at my mouth and warn them from me. In the Old Testament, what they did is they put a watchman on the wall. And the watchman always looked for the enemies that was trying to sneak in to destroy the nation of Israel. In the book of Isaiah, verse, chapter 21, verses 5 through 8, it says this, Prepare the table, watch in the watchtower, eat, drink, arise ye princes, and anoint the shield. For thus hath the Lord said unto me, Go, set a watchman, let him declare what he seeth. And he saw a chariot with a couple of horsemen, a chariot of asses, a chariot, there's your Jehovah Witnesses, a chariot of camels, and he hearkened diligently with much heed, verse 8, and he cried, a lion, a lion. Well, it doesn't take a ton of bricks to fall on my head. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7 and 8 says, your adversary, the devil going about as a roaring lion. Here's somebody back in Isaiah standing on the wall watching for the city and saying, here comes a lion. You know what my job is? Stand in this pulpit, open this book and tell every one of you, tomorrow morning when you go to work, here comes the lion. See? That's my job. That's your job with your children. If you don't believe that, Hebrews chapter 13 verse 7 says, obey them that have rule over you. That's your parents of your children. That's you and the church, if you're a member here, and submit yourself. Why? Why? For they watch for your souls. That's my job. As you grow up and you disciple somebody and you work with people, that's your job. When you get a whole church of people that are watching out for everybody else, not too many people get lost in the cracks. My job is to stand up here and say, look out, there's a lion coming. Look out. That's my job. Your job to your children is to say, Son, daughter, look out. There's a lion out there that wants to devour you. That's your job. You and I are called to be a watchman. We watch for bad doctrine. We watch for bad teaching. Because it is that, the Bible says, Look to yourselves that you lose not those things which we have wrought, but that you receive a full reward. God wants you to receive a full reward at the judgment seat of Christ. God wants the nation of Israel to receive a full reward at the, in the millennial reign of Christ. If you come out of your Bible, and when we start to get into the doctrinal stuff, we're going to lay all this out, you're going to find that there's five crowns in the Bible that you and I get as a New Testament Christian. 
You get those crowns through ministry. You get those crowns through learning the Bible. You get those crowns and at the judgment seat of Christ, when you, God rewards you for the ministry, when you've been faithful in these ministries, you get the crowns. Somebody says, well, what's the big deal about the crown? Well, let me tell you what the big deal is. The big deal is there's going to come a day where you're going to walk in there and everybody's going to give God the glory for what He did and you're going to take all those crowns that you did for the Lord Jesus Christ and you're going to throw Him at your feet. And you're going to lay them down at His feet and you're going to say, God, you gave me these crowns, but I couldn't have done it without you and your love for me to save me and gave me heaven. You know what? All glory be to God here. Take them back for what you gave to me. Isn't it going to be a great day when you walk in there with nothing to throw down? Maybe you throw your shotgun down. Think you want it? God, I don't have a crown, but here's my fishing pole. God, I don't have a crown, but here's my certificate for my Ph.D. that I got. Well, here I don't have a crown, Lord. I don't have any crowns, but hey, I'll tell you what. Here's my bonus check for the big job that I worked my life for. Look to yourselves. Don't lose those things that you have wrought that you might get a full reward. Simple as that. You know, the la- and I'm done now, but I'm just going to, well, we're in great shape. I'm going to preach another hour. No, I'm done now, but I want to show you how this book gets set up. Come to the last chapter of the book of 1 John. Come to the last chapter. I want to show you how this thing all ties itself together, and then we're going to go to lunch. Chapter 5, verse 20. Now watch this. This is how it sets you up for the next book. Doctrinally and practically. And I've tried my best to show you how this thing goes both ways. There's a lot of similarities between the nation of Israel and the body of Christ. A lot of things that fit, a lot of things that don't fit. I've showed you how you work it today. But look at chapter 5, verse 20. And we know that the Son of God is come and hath given us an understanding that we may know Him that is true, and we are in Him that is true. Now, I told you the key to 1 John is knowing God, and there you see it again. When you begin to know God, and you learn Him the way John did through that intimate relationship, then God gives you knowledge. Knowledge expands to wisdom, and then wisdom expands to understanding. That's the book of Proverbs. You and I, as a child of God, can know God. We can know the truth, and we can have understanding. I told you before, knowledge is facts. Wisdom is just facts applied. An unsaved man can have knowledge, and an unsaved man can have, uh, can, have, uh, uh, can have wisdom. But an unsaved man or an unsaved woman can't have understanding. Understanding is looking at any given station and seeing the facts, understanding how the facts apply, but not being able to see how God figures into it. That's understanding. When a disaster befalls America or a disaster befalls a family, I hear it all the time. A little baby dies and everybody says, well, uh, uh, why, why did God let that happen? You see, the facts are the baby died. The wisdom is we all hurt for the family, but we lack understanding. We don't see why God does those things sometimes. When a great disaster falls America or someplace else around the world, we have the facts. It happened. We have the wisdom. A lot of people die, but we lack the understanding of why God is doing around the world and why He does things that way sometimes. 
I'm sure after God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah back in the book of Genesis, the newspaper just reeked with, uh, what happened? Why? I'm sure there was a lot of people running around saying, why did God do that? Why did God do that? Why did God do that? Well, when you read the Bible, you get to understand, you know why God did it. A lot of things get figured out if you just read the Bible. Then he says the rest of verse 20, And we are in Him, that is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. The book of Ephesians is a book that shows you and I, and we studied it when we came through it, that you and I are in Christ. And because we're in Christ, we have the understanding of truth, and the true God and eternal life is in us. And then verse 21, here it comes. Little children, keep yourself from idols. You know, that was the biggest problem Israel had. The biggest problem Israel had all down through the Bible in the Old Testament was simply one thing, putting other things before God. Why, you can just find it over and over again. Why, while Moses is up on Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments, they're down there building a golden calf. I mean, it just seems that every turn in the corner, they just got to have something to replace God with. If you were going to ask me the one question, what was the number one thing that was Israel's downfall, I could say unequivocally, it was the idols they put in their heart and the idols they put in front of God. And by the same token, you want to ask me what the number one problem you and I have in our life as Christians is the idols we put in there before God. I don't know what else to tell you. I put myself in the same boat. I mean, I'm telling you. I'm telling you. You look at this thing of receiving your hope. One of the most unbelievable statements. Little children, keep yourself from idols. The magnitude of that statement and the reality of you and I as a saved man and woman at the judgment seat of Christ not receiving a full reward or losing those things that God had for you. I talked to a man one time. This has been years ago. <clears throat> he was a nice guy. I really liked him. But he could never turn the corner when it came to the world. He always had to have one foot in the world and try to have one foot in God. And of course, how can two walk together except they be agreed? They can't. When you try to walk down the middle of the highway, you're going to get hit from both sides. It's as simple as that. And you know what? I talked to this old boy and I asked him one time. I said, you know what? What about the judgment seat of Christ? Aren't you even remotely concerned that, some, that Christ died for you and he died for you for a reason? He saved you. For, he didn't save you so you could play around all the things you do. He didn't save you so you could just go out and do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it. I mean, there ain't nothing wrong with doing those things, Jack, but you've got to understand that God saved you for a purpose, and you've got to get that purpose first. You know what he said to me? I said, what about the judgment seat of Christ? And you know what he said to me? Honest to God. You know what he said to me? <clears throat> he said, you know what, Bob? Here's how I got it figured. <clears throat> I'm saved, and I know I'm saved, and I may lose all my reward at the judgment seat of Christ, but when I get there, I'm going to know I'm saved and going to heaven. I couldn't believe that. And maybe some of you got the same idea. I don't know. But let me put it in perspective for you. If you was off on a trip someplace and you were out there and your family was home and everybody was there and everybody was just, uh, uh, you know, stayed home and you were out doing someplace and you came back and you found out while you were gone a great catastrophe befell your neighborhood and you came back to your block and it was gone. You came to your house, it was in rubble. You saw the charred bodies of your family, your wife, your kids, your dog, and every piece of life that you ever had destroyed and scattered when your loved one's gone. Was there anybody here that would do a dance and a jig and get absolutely happy and go out and enjoy life and celebrate that you survived and they didn't? I don't think so. What makes you think at the judgment seat of Christ 
when you fully realize and understand what he paid, that you're going to be tap dancing because of the fact that you got through when you didn't know, did absolutely nothing for him and lost every reward you had. I'm telling you. You'd walk around in a daze. You'd pick up pictures of your wife that are burnt on the edges. You'd sift through the rubble for something that reminded you of your child. You would find a dog collar and you would clutch on to it. And you would put them in a little bag. All you got left in life. You'd take those pieces of your life that are wrecked and ruined because of, uh, you weren't there and they died. And you would walk down in a daze. Clutching what was left of what you called precious. And you're going to tell me at the judgment seat of Christ when you get the glorified mind from the glorified book and you understand the most precious man that ever walked this planet that loved you, that died for you, that shed his blood on the cross for you and agonized for you and he gave everything for you and just asked you to give back to him. You're going to tap dance and jump up and down and do high-fiving with everybody, do your end Joan little ding and spike the ball because you made it in heaven with no rewards? I don't think so. I don't think so. How'd you miss it? How'd you not get a full reward? I'll tell you how. Idols in your life. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with doing those things, but everything needs to be done in moderation. I'm saying that you can live your life and you can have fun, but I'm telling you something. There is a goal if you're saved. If you're not saved, have at it. But if you're saved and you're a child of God, then there's a purpose, there's a motive, there's something that God wants you to do. That's why he told the nation of Israel all the way back there in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And they continually put him in. Oh, and we think about those gods today and we're so far removed because we look back there and they're making golden calves. It's not conceivable that we would take all the gold we have and make some molten image and bow down to it. No, no, no. But we'll bow down to the other things in life. Let me tell you something. An idol in your life is whatever it is that keeps you from being here on Sunday morning, keeps you from being in that book, keeps you from growing with God, keeps you from fulfilling God's plan for your life. And that's why, ladies and gentlemen, and maybe some of you don't like it this morning and you think I'm being too rough. Let me tell you something. As rough as you think I am, you wait till you stand before him with the judgment seat of Christ. You know what I am? Don't get mad at me. Don't get upset with me. Please. I'm standing on the wall and I'm telling you, there's a lion coming. You were laying in your bed in the middle of the night and your house was on fire and I was walking my dog and I saw your house burning and I knew you was in there and I kicked down the front door and I ran up and I, I, I shook you awake and the folk and the fire and the flames and things are starting to fall and we got about 10 seconds to get out. Would you say to me, Bob, why didn't you ring the bell? Don't you know I was in the best sleep I have ever had? Yeah, and it's about to get better and longer if you don't get out of this house. We'd pull our stuff together. You'd throw whatever you had or whatever you didn't have, and we'd run down those steps, and we'd get out of that burning house, and you would look at me, and you'd say, Oh, I, I love you. You saved my wife. You saved my kids. You saved my family. Dog's still in there. Would you go back and get him? You saved everything. 
Oh, I'm telling you, folks, I'm standing on the wall. And on the wall, I can see things that you can't see. And I'm telling you, there's a lion coming. And if he doesn't come for you this afternoon, he's going to come for you in the morning. And if he doesn't get there in the morning, he's going to come sometime tomorrow afternoon. That lion has one purpose and one goal. It is to destroy and take from you your family, your wife, your husband, your marriage, your relationship with God. It is to get you to quit walking with God and start walking after the counsel of the ungodly and standing with the sinners. And then pretty soon, where some of them are out this morning, they're sitting with the scornful. And I'm telling you, God has a plan for you, and I'm standing on the wall, and I'm telling you. I'm telling you, there is no reason for you as a child of God not to receive a full reward except one thing. Whatever you put in front of your relationship with God, and that there will be your idol. First John. Second John. Wait till next week we get to third John. Now this is why I couldn't do them together. Incredible material. Incredible book. And let me leave you with this. I'm telling you, God saved you for a purpose. Two plans in the Bible. One of them is the nation of Israel and the other one is the body of Christ. Forget Israel right now. You're part of the body of Christ and God has a plan for your life. Everything you're struggling with, every bad attitude you've got, every disappointment in your life, every failure you've had, everything that has come into your life is simply come in to stop you from growing. And many times we cause their own problem to come in. But regardless to say, we, it stopped us from what God wanted us to do. And that's my point. I'm standing on the wall this morning, and I'm telling you, there's a lion coming. There's a lion coming. I see, a, I see a chariot and three riders. There's a lion coming. Sound the alarm. Man the walls. Get back in the book. There's a lion coming. That's my job. Mad at me if you want. I'd rather have you mad at me here. Well, I'll tell you why. Tell you why and all, and I'm done. I'll read it again. Hebrews 13, 17. Didn't read it all last time. Obey them that have rule over you and submit yourselves for they watch for your souls, comma, as they that must give an account. I'm going to give an account for it. And very frankly, folks, I love you with all my heart. I do. Do anything real for you. My house is your house. I'll spend time with you. Whatever your marriage is, wherever your life is, whatever you're at, I'll do whatever it takes. You can move in if you have to. I don't care. But I want to tell you right up front, I'd rather have you mad at me today for what I just said than stand before him this afternoon and have him mad at me for what I didn't say. And that's where it's at. Every head bowed, every eye closed.